So again, good morning, everybody. Um, I wanted to start off by, I saw something interesting that, I, that was re related to our topic today. Um, on August 23rd, 1984, Ronald Reagan said this, without God, there is no virtue because there's no prompting of the conscience. Without God, we're mired in material, that flat world that tells us only what the senses perceive. Without God, there is a coursing of society. And without God, democracy will and cannot, cannot long endure. If we ever forget that we're one nation under God, then we're, we will be a nation gone under. 33 years after President Reagan spoke these words, America seems to be on the precipice of seeing itself go under. If you just look at the headlines on any given day, it's filled with articles and stories revealing the depths of human depravity due to an erosion of morals and values. The reason many of our religious and political institutions have been stained with controversy and corruption is because there's a lack of knowledge and fear of God. When God is removed from the picture, people will do whatever seems right to them, even if that right is wrong in the eyes of God. President Reagan understood this, and as Christians, we should too. Now, as we begin this new series of stories in the book of Judges, we're going to see what happens when a people and a nation, when the, the people of a nation has forgotten God and is doing whatever seems right to them. So before we get into the word again, let's open up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, um, we come before you on another glorious Sunday morning in order to hear from you, in order to learn from you, Lord, and in order just to fall in love with you more, Lord. For many of us, it's been a long and hectic week. And so now we just want to sit before you, Lord, and just hear from you. You know, we spend most of our week just running around, almost like with our heads cut off, and, and we forget sometimes, Lord. We lose our focus on what is important. And that, of course, is you. So now, Lord, as we open up your word, may it come alive, Lord. May we just hear from you. Now, fill this room with your spirit. Fill us with your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Judges. Actually, before I actually read, I wanted to mention a few things. Um, before we get into today's passage, I want to explain a few things so that you're not confused about what's going on here. Just to give you guys some, some cl to clarify what's happening here with, the, with our new series of stories. The demise of Samson that we read about last week signals the end of the depiction of the judges, the, deliver, the judges delivers, which has dominated the core of the book of Judges. All the way from chapter 2 to chapter 16, there has been a progressive decline in the nation and its leaders. 
In those chapters, reveal the inadequacies of this leadership model by the way Israel returned to its idolatrous ways, which at times was even encouraged by its leaders. In this third and final section of this book, chapters 17 through 21 returns to an emphasis on tribal identity, which was typical in the first two chapters. Now, due to some of the names and locations that are mentioned, many scholars believe the events in this section may have occurred during the time of Judges. And therefore, it's possible that these chapters may have been, may be connected to the period following the actual death of Joshua. In any case, these chapters will, in, uh, in these chapters, the author will offer a series of glimpses of how ordinary Israelites fared in the, day, in the dark days of those judges. It will become obvious that the nation of Israel has abandoned its spiritual heritage and neglected God's command to drive out the Canaanites. Instead, they allowed the idolatrous nations that surrounded them to influence every aspect of their lives, from the way they interacted with one, one another to the way they worshiped God. The author paints a picture of a society who's become Canaanized. Or, as we Christians would call it today, has become worldly. Now, structurally, chapters 17 through 21 divide into two parts that will offer us, again, a window into the private lives of Israelites in each one of those parts. In the first segment, which we will look at today and next week, it describes the fate of the Danites. Well, first of all, we are introduced to a few characters, and then next week, we're going to be looking at the fate of the Danites in the period of the Judges. The second part, which I believe we'll be doing towards the end of the last couple of weeks of the month, of, of this month, describes the fate of the Benjamites. The plots in both segments go their own way, but if you do a careful study, you will see that they're linked. Among the most obvious will be the statements, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, or what everyone did what seemed right to them. So in an effort to make time for communion this morning, we will only be covering the first half of the story that we will try to conclude next week in chapter 18. Here in chapter 17, you will clearly see how this canonization had infected a particular family and how it easily spread to one of Israel's religious leaders. Next week, we'll see how it spread into an entire tribe, into eventually the entire nation. So now that I've given you a little bit of background on what's going on here, let's open up our Bibles to Judges chapter 17. Judges chapter 17. When I was leaving the house, I picked up the wrong Bible. This is my CSB Bible, but this is the small print Bible. I have a larger print Bible that I bring to the pulpit so that um, it's clear. So I was just mentioning earlier that if you see me like straining, it's because this is really small print, you know. So um, <laughs> um, and, and let me, if it's easier for you also to read along on your, on your phone, tablet, whatever it is you have, I mean, that's completely okay. I'm, you know, I mean, 
having your Bibles is great, but if you don't, if you don't have it, then you can also, you know, if it's easier for you to read on your phone, you know, computer or whatever, it's, it's, it's totally fine with me. So again, Judges chapter 17. And we're going to be reading all 13. I'm going to be reading all 13 verses here. Judges chapter 17, verse 1. There was a man from the hill country of Ephraim named Micah. He said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver taken from you, and that I heard you place a curse on it. Here's the silver. I took it. Then his mother said, My son, may you be blessed by the Lord. He returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I personally consecrate the silver to the Lord for my son's benefit. To make a carved image and a silver idol, I will, I will give it back to you. So re he returned the silver to his mother, and she took the five pounds of silver and gave it to a silversmith. He made it into a carved image and a silver idol, and it was in Micah's house. This man, Micah, had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household idols and installed one of his sons to be his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. There was a young man, a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who was staying within the clan of Judah. The man left the town to stay wherever he could find a place. On his way, he came to Micah's home in the hill country of Ephraim. Where do you come from, Micah asked him. He answered, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to stay wherever I can find a place. Micah replied, stay with me and be my father and priest, and I will give you four ounces of silver a year, along with your clothing provisions. So the Levite went in and agreed to stay with the man. The young man became like one of his sons. Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in Micah's house. Then Micah said, I know that the Lord will be good to me because a Levite has become my priest. In our story here in chapter 17, it can also be broken down into three parts. Now we'll be discussing those three parts here. Part one begins with a discussion between a mother and her son, Micah. Micah approaches her, approaches his mother and confesses to stealing 1,100 pieces of silver from her. Now back then, and as verse 10 states, four ounces of silver, and, uh, or actually it's 10 pieces, in other translations it says it's 10 pieces of silver, was about a year's wages. So 1,100 pieces of silver was a considerable amount of money. And more than likely, this was her life savings. You can imagine your life savings one day just disappearing. And, and we've seen stories in the news of that happening. And I can only imagine what that person has felt. But especially a mother. A mother who, who has been raising a son and all of a sudden th that entire life savings is gone. Now verse 2, however, tells us that... The, that um, well, he steals, you know, we find out that he, he's the one who stole the money. Now, verse 2 tells us that the only reason Micah confesses to taking the money was because he got scared 
of the curse she had placed on it. Now, more than likely, he was present or overheard her shout, her desire for a miserable fate for anyone who had stolen that money from her. Now, upon hearing um, Micah's admission of stealing this money, she retracts the curse and places it and replaces it with a blessing by the Lord. So then he returns the silver and, and then she personally dedicates a portion of that silver to the Lord and uses and hires a, a silversmith to make an idol. Now her actions reveal how deep Canaanite religious practices had permeated into the Jewish culture and how it resulted into a misguided view of God. So, you see, her intentions in honoring God may have been sincere, but the way she went about doing it was actually dishonoring Him. Now, this was largely due to an unwillingness of the people to set themselves apart in obedience to God and a willingness to adapt to the Canaanite way of life. Now, once the silversmith had completed the idol, Micah took it and set it up in his house. Part two of this story gives us a glimpse into the life of Micah and how it was indicative of the moral condition of the nation of Israel as a whole. Now, this idol that was in his house, he decides that it deserves a special place of honor and turns a portion of his house into a shrine. Now, this was a direct violation of Deuteronomy chapter 12, which had explicitly declared that when the Israelites entered and had settled in the land, they were to worship God, they were only to worship God, and only at the place Yahweh, or the Lord, would authorize. Then, to make the shrine, even, to make the shrine look more legit, Micah designs and manufactures his own religious paraphernalia, including an ephod and other idols of ancestral worship. Now, if you're not familiar with what an ephod is, it's a vest or a shirt-like garment worn by the, supposed to be worn by the Jewish high priest when they worship God. This kind of ephod, however, may have been similar to the one Gideon made back in Judges chapter 8 and where it was used to worship an idol. The last thing Micah does to make his new religion appear more official was installing one of his sons to be his priest and to lead worship over this wicked shrine. Again, this was a blatant perversion and disregarded God's true intentions of the priesthood. You see, Micah took it upon himself to install his own priest, even though God had already decided or decreed that no one but Aaron's sons would fill that role. In the end of verse 6, the author tells us the reason for this flippant disregard was because in those days there was no king and everyone did what was right to him or to her. So spiritually ignorant was this family that they not only create their own shrine and install their own family member as a priest, 
but they also dedic dedicate stolen money to the Lord and make it into an idolatrous, idolatrous image. In the third and final part of the story, we're introduced to a young Levitical priest who we'll see has an integral role in this chapter and the next. This unnamed Jewish priest had left his duties in Bethlehem and began to wander around the region looking for a place to settle. Now, according to Joshua chapter 21, Bethlehem wasn't even a designated city for the Levitical priesthood. It wasn't even, a well, what I'm saying is it wasn't a designated city for priests to go and do their role or do their priesthood. This may suggest that by the time the Levite, by that time, the Levites had probably been scattered. And this young priest and, or, had been scattered because of the lack of support and sought any sort of living they can find. We're also not specifically told as to why this priest decided to leave Bethlehem. But as a young priest, it's possible he may, be, he may have become dissatisfied or restless there. When the priest arrives at the home of Micah, he is greeted and questioned about his origins. And after informing him of his situation, Micah can't help but to see this young priest as another useful asset to further legitimize his new private home church. So he invites him to not only stay with him, but also offers, offers him the highest role in his home and control of the shrine he just built. Then to make it more appealing, Michael also offers this priest his basic needs of food and clothing, plus a handsome wage of four ounces of silver a year. The Levite gladly takes up the offer of Micah. And what does Micah do? He fires his son and installs this new guy that he just barely knew, that he just barely met, to take his place as a priest. So this Levite is not just, is not merely just another an employee of Micah, but he's also treated as the son Micah had just deposed. So he fires his son, who knows what happens to his son, but he says, hey, you're in charge of this now, and you know, you're gonna be like my, you're gonna be like my father, but hey, you just replaced my son. The chapter then ends with Micah declaring the purpose for installing this Levite. He says in, in verse 13, now I know that the Lord will be good to me because a Levite has become my priest. The idea of a Levite as a good luck charm is, a, is clearly far away from the biblical pattern of the Levite as a servant of the Lord in the tabernacle. So this arrangement had made betrays a misunderstanding of the purpose of the priesthood altogether. As I mentioned earlier, the biggest reason Israel had been thoroughly infected with the Canaanite disease was because of a radical, of the radical individualism that was prevalent or prevalent during the time of judges. See, people were looking to themselves. 
People were looking to themselves to guide their morality and ethics and genuinely, genuinely felt they did what was right. But they measured it only by their own eyes. This was clearly the case with Micah's mother, Micah himself, and the Levite priest who came to stay and work for him. This is very much like the modern follow your heart and let your heart be your guide thinking. Modern culture regards this as the ideal state of society. Yet the Bible and common sense tells us this kind of moral, spiritual, and social anarchy brings nothing but destruction. And here are just a few examples just from the Bible. It seemed right in the eyes of Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, but God said it was wrong. It seemed right to the eyes of the sons of Jacob to sell Joseph into slavery, but God said it was wrong. It seemed right in the eyes of Nadab and Abihu to offer strange fire before the Lord, but God said it was wrong. It seemed right in the eyes of King David to commit adultery with Bathsheba and cover it with murder, but God said it was wrong. And finally, it seemed right in the eyes of Judas to betray Jesus, but God said it was wrong. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the, way, in the end is the way of death. When a man follows his own instincts, apart from the redeemed nature of the converted person, it leads to ruin. We need to follow God's way, not our own. Now, some of you may be thinking, hey, pastor, this story has nothing to do with me. I'm not surrounded by the Canaanites. I don't have a shrine in my house dedicated to an idol. How could this possibly apply to me? Well, I believe this story helps to show us what happens when Christians allow the views of this world to infect the way God desires for us to live. The way God desires for us to live, think, and act while we're in this world. Using the story from this chapter, here are three areas that we can become infected when we begin adopting the views of this world. The first area that can become infected is our conduct. Our conduct, sorry. Just as it was in the days of Micah, we live in a world where one's conduct is considered acceptable or unacceptable on the basis of societal norms rather than on biblical standards. Now, here's just an example. And again, um, there are many examples here where just the conducts of people change depending on what society says. And, and again, I, I have an example here. Um, according to the Pew Research Center polling in, two, in 2001, Americans opposed same-sex marriage by a margin of 57 to 35. Now, based on polling in 2017, 62% of Americans now support same-sex marriage while 32% oppose it. 
Now, the opinion of white evangelical Protestants. In 2001, 13% were in favor of, of same-sex marriage. In 2017, that number jumped to 35%. This number changed not because the Bible changed what it says about marriage, but because society changed its views on it. According to Genesis chapter 2, marriage is a covenant, a sacred bond between a man and a woman instituted and publicly entered into before God. As Christians, we must carefully examine ourselves to ensure, our, to ensure we conduct ourselves according to what the Bible says and not how those in the world conduct themselves. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 3 and 4 says, But sexual immorality, any impurity or greed should not even be heard among you. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. So how then are we to conduct ourselves? In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 12, Peter said, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles or among those living in the world so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and glorify God on the day he visits. And then Paul, he also wrote this in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. And I'm, getting, I'm reading this from the ESV Bible. Don't just pretend to love others really love them hate what is wrong hold tightly to what is good love each other with a genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other never be lazy but work hard and serve the lord enthusiastically rejoice in our confident hope be patient in trouble and keep on praying the second area that can become infected by the world is our mind. You can easily see that the decisions Micah, his mother, and the priest had made were based on what seemed right to them rather than what, what was right in God's eyes. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 26 tells us what distinguishes the two. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. But he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. There are many who think that the only problem with the human mind is that it doesn't have access to all the knowledge it needs. So education becomes a great instrument of redemption, personal and social. The Bible, however, indicates that the mind is not a sophisticated computer managing data that passes in that information to the heart for appropriate emotional responses. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23, Paul said that we ought to be renewed by the spirit of our minds. What he was, what he was implying was that our minds have what we called a mindset that doesn't just have a view, it has a viewpoint. 
It doesn't just have the power to perceive, perceive and detect. It also has a posture, a demeanor, a bearing, an attitude, a bent. It's this mindset that he says needs to be renewed. The problem with our minds is not merely that we are finite and don't have all the information. The problem with our minds our minds are fallen. They have, a, they have a spirit, a bent, a mindset that is hostile to the absolute supremacy of God. Our minds are bent on not seeing God as infinitely more worthy of praise than we are or the things we make or achieve. So how does the renewal of the mind happen? The only one capable to renew the mind is the Holy Spirit. Because apart from Him, we're incapable to renew our own minds. The Spirit works by enabling us to understand truth. When we choose to accept it, He continues to work by changing the way we think about ourselves, others, and the world around us. To renew our minds, the Spirit must work in two directions, from the outside in and from the inside out. He must work from the outside in by exposing the mind to Christ. And the Spirit must work from the inside out, breaking the hard heart that blinds and corrupts the mind. Which leads me to the third area that can easily become infected by the views of this world, our heart. The hearts of all three of these characters in this chapter had been corrupted by a culture and society that didn't know who the true and living God was. They did exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, that Christians, that many times Christians in this world often do. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the Creator. Just as the Spirit has a powerful influence on a believer's heart and mind, the world can do the same if the spirit living within a believer is ignored or neglected. A.W. Tozer once said, the human heart cannot exist in a vacuum. If Christians are forbidden to enjoy the wine of the spirit, they will turn the wine of the flesh, they will, they will turn to the wine of the flesh. Christ died for our hearts and the Holy Spirit wants to come in and satisfy them. Now, in the Christian believer, the Spirit works in conjunction with the heart and the mind to please the Lord and walk in obedience to Him. Whereas those influenced by the world will typically be motiv motivated to act either by how they feel or what they think or what they think in order just to please themselves. This is what Jesus said as evidence of a heart that has been corrupted. 
He said this in Matthew chapter 15. But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. And this defiles a person. For from the heart, evil thoughts, murder, adulteries, and sexual immoralities, theft, and theft, false testimonies, slander, these are the things that defile a person. Unlike the mind that needs to be renewed by the Spirit, to prevent your heart from being contaminated by the wickedness of this world, it needs to be filled with the Spirit. When your heart is filled with the, with the Spirit, there just will be a passionate love for God. In that passionate love for God, there will be joy and satisfaction regardless of the situation or circumstance you may find yourself in. And in that joy and satisfaction, there will be a peace that this world will never be able to offer you. Jesus Christ said this in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. If your desire is to have a deeper intimacy with God, it's necessary that you empty your heart of the things of this world and allow God to fill it with His Spirit. D.L. Moody put it this way, I believe firmly that the moment our hearts are emptied of pride and selfishness and ambition and everything that is contrary to God's law, the Holy Spirit will fill every corner of our hearts. But if we, but if we are full of pride and conceit and ambition and the world, there is no room for the Spirit of God. We must be emptied before we can be filled. The world in which you and I live in today is just as likely to corrupt us as the Canaanite world in which Micah lived corrupted the nation of Israel. We too can easily become infected by the opinions of the world if we don't take the necessary precautions to prevent it from happening. This infection begins with a virus called compromise. And as it spreads, it'll begin to negatively affect every aspect of our lives and our relationship with God. Therefore, it's vital that we set ourselves apart from this world by the way we conduct ourselves through the renewal of our minds and a continuous feeling of the Holy Spirit. And the only way this can happen is if we accept the truth of the gospel and place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If that's what you sincerely desire, if you're watching again and, and listening 
and you've never done that and then you desire just to be renewed to have a new mindset to have a new perspective to have a fresh vision of this world allow the Holy Spirit to come in and change you and the only, again the only way that can happen is if you are born again if you allow Jesus Christ to come into your heart to be your Lord and Savior the Holy Spirit believe me he does it such a radical transformation in your life that that you may not see it now but within the next few years your life will be will look completely different you may be thinking oh I'll never change this is just who I am and you know if you just surrender yourself to the love of Jesus Christ if you sur if you just come to the cross and say Lord change me fill me with your spirit but you got to walk with him every single day every single moment for me it's every single minute I can't do anything apart from him I mean my life is is has been changed radically because of him and he can change your life as well but again it all begins by accepting him by surrendering your heart to him accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior if you've never truly done that if you've never sincerely just dedicated yourself to him I want to just offer you an opportunity to do that right now if that's you and you want to finally surrender your life to Jesus and wherever you're at just close your eyes and pray this from the bottom of your heart Lord Jesus I come before you and confess that I'm a sinner I believe that you died on the cross and that God raised you from the dead I now ask that you forgive me of my sins and be my Lord and Savior in the name of your son Jesus Christ amen if you prayed that if that you prayed that from from the bottom of your heart it's important that you devote yourself to the Lord by getting into his word praying regularly and surrounding yourself with other believers this is important I mean you can't do it on your own you can't do church by yourself. You can't do Christianity by yourself. And you certainly can't do Christianity by just reading books about Christianity. You've got to get into God's Word. He wants to speak to you through His Word. He wants to show you new things. Again, it's that renewal of the mind. It's, that, it's Him revealing truth to you that you've never known before that you've never seen before that you never understood before and that's how he changes your mind and your heart let's close with the word of prayer lord heavenly father thank you again for your word for the lessons shown us for 
speaking to us through it, Lord. Lord, give us the strength to resist the corruption of this world, Lord. Lord, we don't want to look like the world. We don't want to act like the world. We want to, we want to honor you. We want to glorify you with all our hearts, with all our minds, and with all our strength. Keep us in the shadow of your ring, in the shadow of your wing, Lord. Give us the strength we need, Lord, to walk in this world as the salt and light that you've called us to be. In our minds, fill us with your spirit. Let us be set apart from this world. Bless this next time, Lord, fellowship. May we just glorify you with our words. May we just uplift each other with encouragement. Bless everyone's week. That's everyone's everyone's here that bless their week, Lord. And watch over their friends and family and all those they love. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen.